So, and I have a hand, I don't, it's not a handout, but I found a website, and I can share, I'll probably, I'll just post it to the church's Facebook page that we don't use a whole lot to begin with, so maybe I'll start using it. Um, and we, there's a, a list, we all know, and if you've been in church long enough, you'll hear pastors get up on a stage and say, there's over 300 prophecies that point to Jesus as the Messiah, and that's 100% true. But I've never been around anybody that's actually taken the time to go through all 300 and point them out to anybody, because that's quite the service. Uh, but there is one that I really like, because even though there's over 300 prophecies that point to Jesus, some of them are very subtle, some of them are very hard to find, some of them, if you read them, almost sounds like a stretch, even though it's true. But I have a list of 55 Old Testament um, scriptures that are fulfilled directly in New Testament scriptures. And it's really cool to read, like, here's this promise, and then here's the promise fulfilled in the words of Christ and his disciples and the events that happen. It's really, it's pretty cool. And so I'll share that uh, on the Facebook page. But I kind of want to do a smaller, ver shorter version of something like that. I want us to see some Old Testament promises of Jesus as the Messiah. And then I want us to sit in a group of people in ancient Jerusalem who are in the midst of turmoil. There's enemies at the gates. And the prophet Micah says, you need Jesus. And I think that's a great message for all of us to hear today. So... When you start looking, you've heard me mention this, I think I may, maybe mentioned this passage last week, I just kind of mentioned it in passing, that in Genesis chapter 3, we have the first promise of Jesus. Right after the fall, right after God is starting to, he lays out the curse on Adam and on Eve, that Adam's work is going to be from toil, that Eve is going to have pain in childbirth, and then he also says there's, there's going to be tension between you and the serpent, between you and Satan. But the promise is Jesus will smash the head of that serpent. And so we get in Genesis 3.15, I will put an enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And so this is Jesus talking of the serpent and cursing the serpent, saying that there's going to come a time when you will be smashed. And as we continue through Revelation, and we talk about how Satan will be cast into the lake of fire, and we have those kinds of things coming our way, <coughs> even in Revelation. But the first promise of a Messiah existed moments, moments after the fall. That from the beginning, in the beginning, well, just after the end of the beginning, but in the beginning, that was like Bible Genesis humor, nobody? All right. The promise of Jesus existed. The promise of Jesus existed from the very beginning of the Word of God. We then see, again in Genesis, the, sept the scepter shall not depart from Judah, or the ruler staff between his feet until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. <coughs> Sorry. I've had a cold all week. And Anyway, do you guys skip over the genealogies in the Bible? You just kind of skip past them. I can't even pronounce those names. Why am I reading them, right? This is one of the reasons why it's important to look at the genealogies. This isn't Judah as in the tribe, <coughs> it's the man. And if you look at Matthew, as you're reading, you see the genealogies that Jesus comes from Judah. It doesn't mean the country, which we're going to talk about in a minute. He's talking about a person. And so the genealogy is important. When you look in Chronicles and Numbers, you look in Matthew, it's important that the genealogies matter. And I'm just like all of you. I get about halfway through a list of them. I can't pronounce any of them. Even I'm reading silently, like my brain starts hurting. I just skip to the good stuff. It's pretty cool to dig into those. 
Here in Genesis chapter 49, we see the promise that as the scepter, the rulership, is going to come from Judah, and it's going to keep, we will all be obedient to Jesus. As we're talking in Revelation, there's going to come a time when every knee will bow and every head will fall. Like we're all going to put, we're going to see Jesus as the king. That promise has started here in Genesis 49. <coughs> there shall come forth a shoot from the sum of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge, and the fear of the Lord. Now, who's Jesse? Besides the gentleman sitting in the front row here. Who's Jesse? David's dad. So there will come a, a shoot from the stump of Jesse. That there's going to come someone from the lineage. This is family tree talk. It's Jesus. And so then he says, there's going to come this person, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. Does that sound maybe Book of Acts familiar? A little bit? A little bit of dove descending, kind of an ascension like that? This is, this, is, this is Isaiah the prophet laying out who Jesus is. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, while I raise up from David a righteous branch, again, from his family lineage. He shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his day, Judah will be saved, and Israel, now this is Judah the nation, this is the people, and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called, the Lord is our righteousness. Like even, we've got out of Jeremiah, promises of the Messiah. Back in Isaiah, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. I, I think Christmas is about a virgin birth kind of thing happening, maybe? All told to us in Isaiah. That Jesus is the fulfillment. Now, if you have problems with the virgin birth, <clears throat> see me after the service and I can give you some stuff. There's a whole point of the, the a curse upon the, the family and the lineage of Jesus. And it required not only because Jesus needs to be 100% man and 100% God, a virgin birth. It couldn't come from a natural conception. That it also is required to help God's promises be fulfilled because one line of David's line couldn't lead to, it couldn't be from Joseph. It had to come from Mary alone because Jesus had already cursed part of the family line. All I'm saying is God has this all worked out. He has it all worked out. I used to say the virgin birth, you know, when I was very young in my faith, like I, I don't really understand it, so I'm not going to worry about it. You've got to understand it. You've got to believe it. It's essential for the scriptures to become fulfilled in Jesus. Um, so if you have problems with that, please come talk to me. We'll talk. Isaiah 9, for us, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Over and over and over again, we get these Old Testament promises of Jesus, that hope is born in him. In the Psalms, we can get the hint of Jesus speaking in parables, which he's spending time in the Gospels, he speaks in parables. Psalm 78, Give ear, O my people, to my teachings. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. So even the way in which Jesus talked to the people is given, it's, it's a prophetic utterance that he's going to use these ways to teach us. Over and over and over again, over 300 times, it lines up that Jesus is the Messiah. Now, if you do any study um, there, there's a lot of enemies against this truth, against truth being known as truth. Um, you have secularists who don't want to believe in God at all. I'm convinced that if you boil down 
anybody's argument against Jesus, against God, that at the core is that they don't want to obey. They want to live life on their terms. They don't want to think that anybody has authority over them. Because if you begin to believe that, that there is a God, he is real, he really wrote a book, he really has a way for us to live, then it starts to push at the way I want to live my life. And especially in this day and age, um, the God of self is prevalent all over the place. <coughs> we want it to have it our way, which is okay for Burger King, but not for the way for us to live our life. Everyone else, you have Jews who don't want there to be a Messiah because then they're wrong. For 2,000 years, they've been wrong. So you see it in archaeology. When you do it, like I just got back from Jordan a week and a half ago, and last year we went to Israel, and you look at the archaeological sites, you stand on the biblical sites, you read the archaeological reports and what they've done, and you can see very clearly that they're trying to twist things and push things and move things because if they can come to an, an admonition, that Jesus is real, that this scripture all came, comes to be true, it all pans out, and they have to admit and humble themselves they've been wrong for 2,000 years. People don't want to admit those kinds of things. It's hard to be humble and say, I got it wrong. So over and over and over again, people push back against this. And what, I don't have to be right. What scares me is that when people push back against the truth of God, they lose the ability to see hope in Christ. It's not just about winning an argument. I, I can do that. That's not a hard thing to do. But what breaks my heart is that people walk around pushing back against the truth, and what they're left with is a sense of hopelessness and zero direction. That their identity is found in all the trappings of things all around the world and not in Christ. And that terrifies me. And so I wanted you to see what happened to a group of people who lost their identity. In Micah chapter 5, we see a prophet responding to the people of God, specifically in the city of Jerusalem, and they've lost their way. Now, Micah is written during the time um, of the kings. First and second kings, you have the prophet Isaiah and the prophet Micah. They're contemporaries. They're writing around the same time. There's some overlap and some different, but it's all around the same time. And right now, when Micah's writing, um, he wrote a lot during the time when Hezekiah was king. Now, Hezekiah was a good king. Um, he was restoring truth to the people of God. He smashed the false idols that existed in the temple. He removed them from the people of God. He started bringing the outside tribes into Jerusalem, come for Passover. Because what had happened is the people of God in Jerusalem started to isolate themselves. To think that they're the center of Jewish faith. The tribes on the outside were rebellious. They shouldn't live way out in the countryside. They should be here in the city. And they really began to, to, to push away anybody who was part of these tribes. And so Hezekiah says, you need to come. Come be a part of the family. Come be a part of this. Um, and in it, during this time, the Assyrians, which is why I throw a map up here, are coming from modern-day Iraq and coming down from the north. And they've conquered through modern-day Syria. And they've wiped out Hezekiah, or I'm sorry, Micah would have witnessed the destruction of Samaria. He would have seen them captured by the Assyrians, and the Assyrians are at the gates. They're coming for them. And so this is when Micah is speaking. Um, this is when the you know, good king Hezekiah ruled for about 30 years-ish, maybe a little shorter. He starts to correct the things happening in his 
God. He also begins to prepare for what might happen. And so you see, you've heard of Hezekiah's tunnel. Hezekiah's tunnel is a, it's a public works project that Hezekiah enacted because he knew the attack was coming. And so from the pool of Siloam, which is um, below the city, into the city of David, it's below the, the, the walled city of Jerusalem, he had engineers digging from that pool. It's a natural spring towards the city. And then he had engineers digging from in the city towards the pool. And they were to meet in the middle. And we had the opportunity um, last year to go through the tunnel. That's Amber's back and her purple backpack. And it's really tight. She likes to, she looks like a little Dora the Explorer, doesn't she? Um, she's going through the tunnel. And when you, you're going through it about four times, you can see the course correction where the pickaxes have changed direction. Like they're going this way, and all of a sudden there's like a bump, and they started going this way. I don't know how they did it. It's amazing engineering feat that they laid it out on the top, and they, I don't know. I mean, I was a history major. I read books and wrote papers. I don't know how engineering at all. But it's amazing to see how this happened. It's amazing. And this was his wisdom to protect the people. As he was led by God, he was going to protect his people. But in the midst of this, the people are rebellious. They had brought false gods into the temple. They brought false gods into the city of Jerusalem. And this king was trying to right the ship. So you see Isaiah writing over and over again about the kings and trying to correct the kings and correct the kings and correct the leaders. Micah focused a lot on the people. He does mention the leaders. He mentions them in chapter 3. But he's also very hesitant to put his faith and trust in those leaders. And so in the prophet Micah, we see that the hope is not in the leaders. The hope is in Jesus. And I think it's a great message for us to hear today. You turn on the news. We've got leadership all over. People are making decisions. And too often we put our hope in a person who's put in a position of authority as a government structure, a city, local, county, national, international. We put all of our our hope and our trust in these people, and we should be putting them. Siri's trying to take me to First National Bank. <laughs> Not sure how that just happened, but I guess I said nation. But anyway, it's pretty funny considering what John said. Give me a dig at Apple products, and they're malfunctioning on stage. I'm not going to hear the end of that forever. All right, back to the Bible. Um, Micah's writing to the people. He's, he's writing to, to the group as a whole to stop following just these leaders, and you need to, you need to follow God. And so his first, in chapter, or verse 1 of chapter 5, the first thing he says is, Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. It, it's essentially, it's kind of a play on words. He's saying, like, marshal your troops. Get them all together, O daughter of troops. You put your faith in your military might. Gather them up. Gather up the troops. The enemy's coming, O daughter of troops. But you put your faith in your military might and your strength. Siege is laid against us. With a rod, they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Now, a couple things going on. 
the rod they will strike the judge of Israel on his, uh, the judge of Israel on the cheek. Um, being slapped is a consistent, especially in the Bible. When Jesus talks about turning the other cheek, he's talking about being slapped. It's a it's a demeaning way. If you're going to fight someone, you ball up a fist, you grab a weapon, and you go at it. But if you slap someone, that's a demeaning. It's it's a I'm in charge of you. I'm overpowering you. You don't even have the might to fight back. It's a way of of demeaning someone. Um, there's a UFC fighter. I don't know if you guys watch UFC fights or not. You're probably more moral than me. But there is one. You can look it up on YouTube. And he purposely, in the middle of a fight, when he starts one of his first, or when he's really trying to antagonize someone, trying to get into someone's skin, he doesn't punch them. He slaps them. The middle of a fight. And it's, some, it's not just a bold one. It'll be like he's coming up for a punch, and he'll just open his hand and just kind of push their face. He's trying to antagonize them. He's trying to say, I'm superior to you. I'm better than you. I wasted a blow to the face, which could potentially win this fight with a slap just to show you I'm in charge. That, that, there's a level of arrogance there, but there's also a, a powerful statement that I'm so not afraid of you. I'm so much better than you that I'm going to do it with a slap. Which is why if there's a domestic a domestic abuse, if there's if there's slapping, or it's always a way of demeaning, isn't it? It's always a demeaning act, and we see that happen in the Bible. So this is Micah saying, the Assyrians, you put your faith in the military when they show up, they're so much more powerful than you. They're just going to slap you in the face. They don't even see you as an opponent. He then says, but you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, which is the ancient name for the city of Bethlehem. He's making a connection. You small city, ancient city, a king is going to come from you. Salvation is going to come from this little, know-nothing backwater town. Not from the genealogy of the kings in Jerusalem, but a stump, a root from the stump of kings is going to be the Messiah. Little among the clans, you shall come forth me, for me, one who is the ruler of Israel, is coming forth from old, from ancient of days. This is a predicted prophecy. Micah's writing about 700 AD, so he's already a thousand years plus away from Moses and everything else that's happened in the Old Testament, saying that this has been a prophecy that's existed for a long, long time, and his name will be known in the city of Bethlehem. How, how do you think that? Wise men knew where to go look and stuff. Maybe because they had access to the scriptures. It, I mean, Siri's great, but the Bible predicted this thousand years ahead of time. They didn't even need a direction book. How do we know? Oh, the Bible says. Where'd they go? To that city. What'd they find? The king. Happenstance? Nope, not at all. Verse 3. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor is given birth. Who's the he? God himself shall give them up, leave you to your own devices, leave you to thinking you can run this on your own, until the time when she who is in labor is given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. So who is going to bring the people, the tribes, the scattered tribes, who's going to bring the nations together? It's Jesus. Then until the time... When ev until the time that the woman gives birth to the Messiah, 
everything is going to be chaotic, and the hope of the nations exists in this baby we celebrate on Christmas Day. The church, the Christian church in the world, I would argue, until I'm blue in the face, is the most diverse place on the planet. Maybe not in little old Wyoming, maybe not in certain areas of the country, but the church global is the most diverse place on the planet. Right now, on Sunday morning, all across the world, or if there are people who are nine hours ahead, it was earlier, but across the world, there are hundreds of languages, thousands of ethnicities, whole different countries, people of all age, shape, economic position, color, all over the world are coming together under one banner on a Sunday, the banner of Christ. The cross of Christ, his blood on the cross, brings us all together. And I know there, we should make great efforts to get along with each other, with other nations, with other people, people different than us. We should make supreme effort in that. But they all pale in comparison to when people are coming together in the banner of Christ. You have a common bond, a shared salvation. It's everything. And that's what the prophet Mike is talking about. It's great for countries to have peace treaties and economic treaties and come together and not blow each other up. But the only way you can really get people together to throw away all of their own wants, their needs, their preconceived notions, is to come together and say, you, you're a Christian? You love Jesus? I love Jesus. We read the same Bible that stood the test of time for 2,000 years. Yours might be translated different language, but it says we're to glorify God with everything, and it says we're to make disciples. It says we're to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. I think we can get along. It's the only thing that brings it together. It's the only thing that brings us together. And Micah is professing this, that when the baby's born in that town, that's where hope exists. We continue. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. Okay. The, the imagery of shepherds is all over the Bible. And I don't know how many of you have ever shepherded sheep before. I'd like to say that I have, but I have not. Um, I've been around livestock, I've been around animals, but not a lot of sheep going on. But if any of you have ever worked in any kind of agrarian, grown crops, had cattle, been around animals, you know, if you own a horse, you've got to, you know the kind of care it takes to take care of it. I would even argue those of us in the room who are parents understand shepherding a little bit because we have kids. And you have to herd them and corral them and get them where they need to be and you got to give them their shots. you got to feed them every day and bathe them. It's just like having a sheep, right? Okay, it's, it's a lot different, but you get my point. Shepherds, a shepherd's role is to feed, water, care, protect, do all of these things. And for Jesus to consistently be called the good shepherd, for the shepherds to be some of the first witnesses, I think God's trying to tell us something. I, I know he's trying to tell us something. That if Jesus is the good shepherd, shepherd work isn't always easy. It's not always fun. And often the sheep, which is you and I, don't understand what's going on. Last, or a week and a half ago, when I was in Jordan, we were out looking at a, a biblical site. We are actually going to this spot to look out over a valley so we'd understand how the movement of the people of God worked. 
we, we're, we went out to look at the valley of Jordan where the Jordan River flows through, look at the dam where the water is. The whole point was for us to see where the people of God would have been. It's not a significant site. It's actually still in the middle of a, it's in the middle of a Bedouin camp. So here's a shepherd. You see him off to the right. He's hanging out. We are warned as we this bus pulls up and 55 people climb out of a place where there's no tourists. Nobody comes here. Um, and you show up. And the dogs are going nuts because there's something that could be dangerous to them. They're great dogs. And the, our, the archaeologist who's leading the trip said, hey, don't pet these dogs. Matter of fact, don't pet any dogs around here. Um, they're here to protect. Um, they're never getting shot. Who knows what they have. They go, but just the dogs are going to be loud. They'll come at you. They get too close. You can kick them if you need to. But just, just keep walking. You'll be fine. They were there to protect those sheep. And as soon as we got out, the dogs are there. Well, this guy's standing over here or sitting over here, and we didn't know what he was doing until we got up real close. Um, you can't really tell, but there's a brand-new lamb on the ground in front of Mama. Just birthed within minutes before we got there. And in the wisdom of this shepherd, he knew, because some people visit the site every now and then, but not very often, he knew that all these people come up and are going to walk through here. These sheep are going to get scared. The dogs are going to crowd them because they're doing their job. And if this baby lamb, it's a you, right? It's a baby. This you is going to be a band. It's not. Females a you. So what's a baby lamb? Okay. <laughs> Clearly, I grew up next to corn in Indiana. All right. So this baby lamb is right there, and Mama. I'll just call her Mama from now on. Mama is scared. So what's the shepherd do? Because the shepherd knows what's going to happen. He knows that this ewe is going to run, and this baby lamb is going to be abandoned. This baby is going to die. Now, what's he do? He lays down on top of the ewe. He sits on her, and he's just smiling, and our, our guide speaks Arabic, is talking to him. He's like, hey, he's waving, and it's no big deal to him. He's just doing his job. <clears throat> he puts his weight upon the mom so that the lamb who's been born, would survive. Now, do you think that mama knows what's going on? No. Have you ever held your children down when they're getting shot? It's a lot of fun, isn't it, parents? It's not fun at all. Thankfully, we had a pediatrician in West Virginia for most of Eli's shots. He was like a shot ninja. He was crazy. He was like, hi, how are you? Boom, 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 all done. And like, you didn't know what was happening. But there's been some holding some kids down in our in our life. There's been x-rays and all kinds of stuff and as a parent like you got to hold do you think the child knows what's going on they're mad they're upset what are you doing this hurts this is painful well think about our good shepherd our good father we don't always know what's happening we don't always know what's going on but he has because of the promises we see in the old testament we see a consistency that he cares deeply for his creation he cares cares deeply for his image bearers and he's doing everything for our best interest that doesn't mean necessarily long life. That doesn't necessarily mean an end to suffering. But it's for our good for eternity. That we have a good shepherd who may allow pain to come. He may allow for things to go wrong as we perceive them. But he is constantly working and moving in our favor. The most beautiful example of that I can share with you in recent days is Maggie and Asa. I got to go sit with them for a couple hours in the cafeteria Friday at Children's Hospital. I've been to Children's Hospital before. It is an amazing place, and it's a sad place, 
It's a beautiful place and a place filled with joy and a place filled with lots of tears. And we're sitting in the cafeteria and Maggie and Asa are both just beaming with pride over their baby girl. Knowing that she's got a road ahead of her, that the path they as parents thought that they were going down isn't the exact path they thought, but it's a beautiful path. They're embracing the path and they're ready for it. And giving God all the credit. And I sat back, I'm like, I'm, I'm supposed to be like the shepherd of this flock and of this church. And they're encouraging me. And I'm going back in my brain going, would I have said the same? Would I have in two days removed? From all this action, would I have been in that place in my faith? I hope so. But I've never been put in that situation. But no matter what is happening with their baby girl, they know that God is a good shepherd and that he's taking care of them and her. That's what Mike is trying to get across in this passage. This good shepherd is going to take care of us. Even though the Assyrians are at the gate. The conflict is coming. But he's bringing peace in the future. The rest of this site, I'll just share a couple things with you. Uh, you can't. It looks it looks a little better on my phone, but the, this extends to be almost like a plus sign. Which you, when you see that around, um, it means a cross. And they were all over the place. The, the place we were at was a Christian camp, so this has been a place where people live for a long time and profess the faith in Christ. They were all over the place. And then um, there was a manger that was upended. A place where you put feed so it's above the ground. Um, I know we have a great little representation of a manger over there, but it's probably stone. They're all over the place. Um, so I just thought I'd share that. It's cool. He stands above his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure for now. He shall be great to the ends of the earth. And he shall be their peace. Our peace comes from Christ and Christ alone. It doesn't come from anything else. And I know all of us. I mean, you should be diligent. You should be smart. Like, you don't just live a life and go, you know, the roads are all closed. I'm just going to go around them. Those people, they don't know. That's not for me. Like, there's wisdom in following good advice and being logical and reasonable. He gives you those to be used. But we don't look for our peace, our true peace, our eternal peace in anything else but Jesus. In anything else but Him. He is the source of our peace. So I'll leave you with a couple thoughts. Israel's rebellion in here, and what Mike is writing about directly, is that they lacked care for other people. If you continue in Micah chapter 6, most of you have heard Micah 6 8. He puts an indictment on them, and in 6 8, he says, uh, Well, but we'll just start in six. What does the Lord require? With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with the calf, with calves a year old? So this is these are rhetorical questions Mike is saying. Like, what am I supposed to do to please God? What am I supposed to do to, to take this burden away? Verse 7. Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? So he's saying, is it calves? Is it rams? Is it oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Now, as an aside, we'll get into this. I haven't decided how I want to put this all into one sermon. Um, we saw more and more evidence 
in these biblical sites that I was just at, over and over again, how child sacrifice was prevalent during the time of God. Over and over again, we got to see some burial jars where babies were ritually sacrificed and buried in the home um, to bless the god Molech. We see it over and over and over again. Um, And God put his wrath upon some of the people. When people say things like, well, God was so mean, and why did he say wipe those people out? A lot of it had reference to do um, people who would, would destroy the image bearers of God and would go into child sacrifice. So the reason why Micah mentions this is because it's part of the cultural history. The people used to used to sacrifice their firstborn child to please God. Verse 8, he has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. They aren't taking care of the people around them. They they brought in their society and they became all about themselves. They become all about them. And they quit looking outside for those around. They quit caring for those around. And so the prophet Micah is saying that this judgment that's coming, that the Assyrians are coming to attack, is directly related to the people of God not looking outside of themselves. We know that the promise the covenant made with Abraham was that the people of God would be a blessing to the nations. And when you stop being a blessing to the nations, you're no longer in God's will. You're no longer following the path that he has for all those who would call him king. And secondly, the remnant that keeps the word of God central will be cared for and vindicated by Christ. So we have to keep the word of God central to what we do. That the scriptures matter, that the inerrancy of scripture matters, that we follow what the Bible says, we believe it to be true, matters. And during this time, he says that people who, there's going to be a remnant, a remnant from Jacob, you continue on read the rest of Micah, there's going to be a remnant that's going to rise up, and it's the people who have been faithful to God, have followed his word, they're going to remain. So what's it look like for us? We have to follow what God says. Like Just like what happened when Hezekiah comes. What do you, how fast would I continue as a pastor in this church if I started bringing false gods into the church? The, the god Molech that all these babies are killed, they're sacrificed to, is all over. Um, the modern representation of Molech, there are still people, if you look him up, there are still people that worship Molech, and it's in the image of an owl. And so what if I started bringing some owls in and kind of putting them around up here, just kind of like, you know, just like, you know, don't you love the owl? And what? You would throw me out in a heartbeat, wouldn't you? Pretty close. I'm looking at a lot of you nod, yes, sir. We would have that conversation. We would try to correct you, and we would kick you out pretty quick. Or if I brought some other image in, you know, bring a, a and not just, not like Zeus, but I put like a small Shinto shrine over here, and we put it over here. You guys would get rid of me. But what if I did it more subtly? The Bible doesn't really say that. It's not really what the Bible says. I, I read, did some research, I read a book, I went to a place, and this, I don't really think this is what God meant in this part. What if I started doing that? Well, Mike, you know, you're so smart and so handsome. You must be right. How, how, how quickly could you turn a whole church in a different direction by just throwing these subtle false truths out? We have to remain faithful to the inerrant word of God to be the remnant that exists. That no matter what happens all around us in the world, no matter what happens all around us in the church, 
No matter what stuff is brought in, we stick to the very word that God's given us. It's all we have. It's our anchor. We have to stay true to this. Because then what happens when you go off, and my whole point to this, if you have the keys of hope to someone, and you go to them and say, I have complete confidence in God. I know that Jesus will take care of it. I know you're in the midst of pain right now. I know that your heart is breaking right now. But my God loves you. And he's made promises to care for you into eternity, even if it hurts now on earth. And then you have another conversation with him and go, well, but some of it's not really true. Some of it we don't really have to look at. Some of it we don't really have to follow. Then you've just destroyed your message of hope to the whole world. Because you've told them, have hope in Jesus. But his word, we could edit that a little bit. We can't be that way. We have to be people that believe that God's word is true. And then we have the power of hope to go to the world. Some of you shared. John shared a little bit when he was up here. Um, Risa shared. Like there's, there's a lot of people hurting during this season. A lot of people hurting. They've been through turmoil this year, turmoil in their life. There's been loss. There's been despair. And you have the keys of hope. You get to gather around a table, eat cookies, eat great food, share gifts. You have the answer of hope that they're desperate for. Will you share it? And I have the same pressure on myself. Like every time I share with you years and years and years. And half the time it takes one of my children to be the one to be bold enough to start a conversation with my parents about their faith. Because here I am. It's hard to be a prophet in your own home. It's hard. It's, those conversations are hard with your family. I'd love to sit around eating amazing Vogue's pizza. The best pizza the world's ever seen created in Little Vincent's, Indiana, and look across the table at my mom and say, Mom, as amazing as this pizza is, the communion table with Christ in heaven will be so much better. Because she has a tendency to chase all kinds of other things other than Christ for the hope in her life. And when she gets down and she's dark and she's depressed, she puts the blame on herself, puts the blame on people around. She doesn't see that hope was in Christ. And then there's times when she sees that hope. And I want it to lean more towards seeing the hope more. And I have a feeling it's going to take a hard conversation from me to her for her to see that. But I have to stand on the rock-solid Bible to have that conversation with her. I can't go into that conversation with her saying, well, most of it's true. It's all true, all of it. What Mike is addressing to the people of God in 700 AD is the same thing that you and I have to deal with today. God is real. He's full of love for us. And he wants us to desperately put our hope in him and him alone. Will you do that?